This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Welcome to the December episode, listeners. I'm news editor Ezzie Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, I'll be talking to Apostolos Christou about his discovery of a moon-like asteroid in the same orbit of Mars. And we'll be telling you our top stargazing tip to see in this month's night sky. But for now, we're going to take a look at what we found out whilst we were putting together the December issue of the magazine. And this month, uh, we decided to, to take a look back and a look forward at a mission that is currently going through the outskirts of our solar system, New Horizons. Uh, as many of you know, uh, might recognise the name, it flew past Pluto back on the 14th of July in 2015, so five years ago now. But that wasn't the end of its mission, far from it, ever since it has been shooting out into the outskirts of the solar system. Uh, and is currently a 7.2 billion kilometres away, which is quite far away. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty far away. It it doesn't feel like it was five years ago, does it? It doesn't at all. It's especially because we've had so, because you hear about it every so often, um, because it took so long for the data to get back from New Horizons. So New Horizons flew past Pluto on the 14th of July, 2015, as I said, Um, Its closest approach was at 11.49 GMT, and it approached within 12,472 kilometres of the surface, which when you're talking flybys, that's pretty (laughs) close. It had to go through, there was a a 22-hour wait as it flew past because it wanted to focus all of its attention onto 
the surface of the 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 dwarf planet onto the surface of Pluto, um, and it couldn't send any signals back. So there was I remember because I was reporting on it at the time that that sort of weight of like has it been a success? Has it been hit by some piece of debris? Are we ever going to hear from it again? But we did. Um, yeah. And then on the 15th of July, we started getting all of these incredible images uh, back from it. But it's taken the spacecraft, it took the spacecraft 15 months to download all of its data. And that's not because it had a lot of data. It only had about, it only took about six gigabytes of information. So for reference, that's about the same as one or two high definition films if you download them off the internet. Um, and yet it took so long because the distance was so far and it had barely any power to be able to send this back. So it took a long, long time. And that means people are still going through all yeah. of this information and probably still will be for another couple of years. I mean, I, th- I think, um, it's, it's incredible to think in, in spite of that, in spite of the, um, the difficulties, I suppose, of, of getting the information back that we did actually manage to get those, amazing mm. images you know along with the data um and i think you know for, for most people the thing that will stand out most is that that incredible heart-shaped region yeah. on pluto you know just that amazing as it was kind of almost like the first glimpse uh, you know as 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 the spacecraft was approaching pluto that was that was really what what, what stands out doesn't it just that that heart-shaped region yes because even though the the closest approach happened you know on the 14th the the entire like two weeks leading up as the the spacecraft got closer and closer it was getting able to to resolve first of all it was just this point of light then it was you could see it was a ball and then you could start making out things on its surface and even from from a couple of days away you could start seeing that that heart um the heart of pluto and it was it was just really exciting watching this sort of getting ever closer and closer and closer um and actually that heart is is as well as being, you know, a, a beautiful, because uh, the pictures that came back from Pluto were absolutely stunning. But everybody was expecting to get to Pluto and find it was just this dead ball of ice because it's so far away from the sun. Um, how could it possibly, you know, had, just didn't have the energy to be able to 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 do like things like volcanic processes, and yet there was this great big white heart which looks like a massive glacier of nitrogen that they now think is about four kilometers thick it's in fact it's so big that it's actually started pulling pluto around to face its moon um charon and nobody was expecting to see that this incredibly dynamic surface you know there's evidence that there's a liquid water ocean below the surface of pluto that there's volcanism going on, that it might be tectonically active. And all of that requires like quite a lot of energy that people just weren't expecting to find on this planet so far from the sun. But isn't that that volcanism, is, um, isn't that cryovolcanism? We're not, we're not talking lava, are we? We're talking sort of ice? Yes, that's, that's a very important distinction, actually. Thank you. Um, we're talking cryovolcanism. <laughs> so this is when you're getting that cold, because even though it's far away and it's, it's energetic, it's it's very, very cold because it's so far away from the sun. And at those temperatures, water and even things like nitrogen start acting completely differently. Nitrogen isn't a gas, it's a liquid. Uh, 
ice gets so hard, it acts more like rock than it does ice that we know on this planet. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so you get this kind of like volcanism cy- cycle, but instead of it being molten rock and molten lava, it's molten nitrogen and molten water and, and water rocks, which I've always loved cryovolcanism. I think it's this fan. It's a, just wonderfully strange and alien and yet somehow familiar yeah exactly like when they talk about you know the um the volcanoes mm. on jupiter's moon io you know you can kind of imagine what that might be like mm. because we have volcanoes on earth but when you think of ice volcanoes you just mm. think that's just absolutely mind-blowing that's just such a cool thing that yeah. we've that we've been able to discover in the, in the solar system that was there was i can't remember if it was alan stern who's the head of new horizons or ed stone who's the head of Voyager. Um, But I was interviewing them once and they said, um, one of the things that we find every time we take another step out into the solar system is we always find something completely strange and unusual that nobody was expecting to find. You know, no one expected to find cryovolcanoes on the icy moons of Jupiter until... Voyager flew by and saw it and no one was expecting Pluto to be active until we flew by it and saw it. And just every time we take a new look mm. at a new place in the solar system, we're just blown away by by how strange and and frequently how wrong we are <laughs> about our ideas of what it's like <laughs> out there. Yeah, I mean I think it's um it's interesting that you're kind of mentioning Voyager there because I think I think I'm pretty sure it was Carl Sagan who said that you know after Voyager, you know, the planets are no longer just sort of orbiting distant points of light. Mm. You know, like we we can now we, we now we now know what they look like close up, pretty much, and, and we know a lot more about them. And you, and and you definitely get that from the New Horizons mission, don't you? Because as you said, you you might have expected Pluto to be um, this sort of dead mm. ball of ice, but in fact, it's 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 shown that it's 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 quite geologically active. I mean, I was reading about those those um there's like these mm. like cellular ice features. Um, that um, New Horizons discovered, and they're about fifty kilometers across, and some of them could be as, as yeah. young as like a million years old. Which, when you consider, you know, um, you know, the age of the solar system, that's still quite young. And they've got these like, uh, so this kind of like smooth in the middle and rough around the edges. So they think that that might be like con- convective nitrogen flow, but the heat from the heat from below the surface is causing nitrogen to to rise in the center, and you know, and then kind of fall at the at, at the edges. Yeah, it's. There's some incredibly complex things going on um, on the surface of Pluto. Because uh, that, that's one of the things I always find when you're looking at something like geology is just like how much everything interacts and and feeds into each other. Yeah. And, you know, it's like the, 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 the state of the ground and how thick the crust is and then what's going on below the surface and the way it interacts with the atmosphere. And there's just so many different things going on that can change what happens on this, what, what happens. Yeah. Um, but also, I suppose, as well as nitrogen, there was, there was a lot of sort of um, methane ice discovered, wasn't there? And that was kind of one of the big discoveries of, of New Horizons at Pluto. Mm. Yes, uh, a lot of methane, um, a lot of uh, what they call or- organic molecules, um, so organic, to be clear, doesn't mean the same as biological. It doesn't necessarily mean um, that it was created by life, but it is one of the things that one of the ingredients that we believe you need to make life. Um, and whilst nobody's expecting to find life on Pluto, it it's one of those markers that we like to track 
that people like to track because it explains how those ingredients got to Earth and potentially where they are on other planets where they might form life. Um, and one of the interesting things that they found mm. was that there was... Because uh, Pluto has a, a, a moon called Charon, and the moon is about half the size of the planet. So it's relative to each other. They're they're pretty well matched. It's almost kind of that there are... Some people say they're a binary system, so it's not really a planet and a moon. Sorry, a dwarf planet. Need to be careful about that one. A dwarf planet and a moon. <laughs> um, they're actually orbiting each other. Um, but they interact a lot. So Pluto has a very thin atmosphere, which sometimes strays across to Charon. Um, and that's why when you look at the moon, Charon, it has this kind of reddish tinge that people were struggling to explain at first. Um, and now people think it might be from organic chemicals raining onto it from Pluto. So Pluto's atmosphere is kind of being sucked onto Charon and it interacts and forms these organic chemicals on the surface. Um, wasn't, that, wasn't that to do with the um, sort of methane being hit by sunlight? Because I'd read that that... that part of the, the rusty red colour that we see in Pluto in those New Horizons images was like organic materials called tholins and they, they yes. occur when sunlight reacts with frozen methane? That is, uh, I think it's the, the current leading theory is that there's something called tholins, which is just a very specific kind of organic molecule that happens to be red. Um, and yes, it's caused by, by light yeah. interacting <laughs> and uh, affecting methane. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they did also find evidence of, of water ice, didn't they? And apparently on, on the highest peaks of Sputnik Planitia, which is the sort of western lobe of the heart, they found actual evidence of water ice. Hmm. As, I wouldn't be surprised because, like I said, it's it's water starts mm. acting like rock. So, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, you would be expected to kind of like find mixed in with the, the, the sort of the main body of Pluto, sort of what makes it up. There's probably going to be some water ice in there. Yeah, and I think one of my... <clears throat> I think one of my favourite um, discoveries was that there's like a, a big deep canyon system, which apparently is a lot bigger than the Grand Canyon. So it's 700 kilometres long <laughs> and nine kilometres deep, this huge canyon system on Pluto. I mean, it just as, as you were saying, you know, it just, it, just, it just brought the planet to life, didn't it, you yeah. know, for us, us back on Earth? Yeah, I always think that's, that's one of the, the strange things because on Earth, because we have things like tectonic plates and, and weather, um, even our biggest geological features, they don't get the chance to get that big because then basically the planet mm. changes before they have the chance to grow. Um, so even our kind of, you know, like our Grand Canyon and our Mount Everest, when you compare it to like the other mountains and canyons in the solar system, they're tiny. They're not anything. They're nothing to write home about. Yeah, but I suppose um, it's worth talking about the, um, you know... New Horizons mm -hmm. mission post-Pluto. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Um, so, yeah, so on, on the 1st of January, 2019, New Year's Day, it was a pretty cool time to be doing it. Most of us were probably either still in bed or reading from the night before. Um, New, New Horizons um, performed this close encounter with a, with a Kuiper Belt object. Um and so yeah, so so the Kuiper belt object is this edge of is the edge of the of the disk out of which the solar system formed. So about five billion years ago, there was a giant molecular cloud started collapsing. Out of this formed the sun and the planets in orbit. Um, to cut a long story short, and um, <clears throat> the Kuiper belt is this outer disk of these icy, dusty rocks and, and other bodies, um, and they're essentially primordial relics. So there's the sort of primordial relics left over from the solar system's formation, um, and the idea after Pluto, was to go and take a look um, up close at one of these Kuiper Belt objects. I mean, you know, I suppose it's worth pointing out that Pluto is not Mm -hmm. considered a Kuiper Belt object, isn't it? You know, so I suppose Pluto was the first Kuiper Belt object that, you know, we had a close encounter with. Um, But um, the one that they looked at after Pluto was um, a kind of medium to small one. Um, It was called Ultima Thule for a long time, but it's since been renamed to 486958Arakoth, and it's this sort of a snowman-shaped um, rock. Uh, first, yeah, first Kuiper belt ever flown by, if you don't include Pluto. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of important um, <clears throat> to do, you know, it was, a, it was an important undertaking, I suppose, because to get the chance to do it, because as I said, you know, these are sort of primordial relics of the solar system. So the more you learn about those, those Kuiper belt objects, the more you potentially learn about um, what the early solar system was like, maybe potentially how it formed, how it's evolved over time. Um, because Arakoth is known as a cold Kuiper Belt object, which means that its orbit hasn't really changed. It's it formed where it where it is, and it stayed there largely untouched for about four point six billion years. Um, although I suppose you know, it's not as if it's going to be utterly mm-hmm. pristine, is it? Because it it'll, it'll still get hit, bombarded by radiation from from the sun and things like that, won't it? Yeah, it's it's getting bombarded by radiation from the sun. Also, it's it's getting bombarded by other Kuiper Belt objects. Um, I think that that was one of the things that they they found out about it because, as you said, it's this snowman, so it's got like these two lobes. They're called, but it's basically like two lumps stuck together, um, and they look like they've been sort of been through the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so they're a similar color. They've got the 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 same amount of of, of impact craters and so much on them. So they they think they probably formed at about the same time, rather than sort of coming together at a later date. Yeah, and that that collision because I, I think it was it was around about this time last year. I think um, I was um, interviewing um, Kerry Liss, who was one of the New Horizons scientists who was kind of um, involved in that Kuiper Belt flyby. And he said that um, they worked out that the the two lobes, so they're about uh, nine and seven mm-hmm. kilometers across, respectively, and they were separate lobes that then joined. And he said that they they probably joined, they probably collided at speeds of a, a few millimeters mm. per second. Yeah. So hardly anything. And he said um, he said that there was a joke going around the New Horizons team at the time, which was um, if you want to recreate the uh, the collision that formed Arakoth, just um, walk into a wall. <laughs> <laughs> 
which obviously we don't suggest that mm-hmm. anyone does. Um, but it's quite quite a nice uh, quite a nice image. Um, but yeah, I suppose it's worth um, just pointing out the the, the sort of um, logistics of the um, of the flyby. So its closest approach was three thousand five hundred kilometers from the object, um, and um, it was traveling about fourteen kilometers per second. You know, so when, when you consider, so that's actually it got closer than it to to Arakoth than it did to yeah, Pluto. exactly. Because, um, mm-hmm. but still, you know, when you consider, you know, at that, that distance, traveling fourteen kilometers per second, to be able to get what all the data that they did, you know, the amazing images, and they they took spectra and radio measurements, and um, they were able to measure how the uh, the solar wind, this uh, as we said, you know, um, this kind of bombardment of charged particles from the sun. How it, how it sort of interacts with the, the surface um, of Arakoth and the, the effect that that has. And, and it, it, it all ultimately pertains and comes back to this idea of just learning more about the, the, the chemistry and sort of what's going on out there so that you can get a better piece of, of you know, these, these relics of the solar system and, and how they've changed and what that tells you about what the early solar system might have been like. Mm, yeah, it's... I don't, whenever you sort of read about the actual logistics of of kind of, because because you sort of hear about it, it's like oh yes they they flew past the planet they took some pictures of course that's perfectly straightforward everybody can do that but then you actually think about it and it's it's like trying to take pictures of something right on the horizon when you're driving past it at seventy miles an hour in a speeding car kind of thing it's it's just when you actually sort of think of the logistics of it it's amazing that they managed to do any of this i know and and, and as we said you know not, not just yeah. images but all that data all that data that's still yet to be sifted through and, and still still downloading that's the thing that they they were saying is that um it's it's sort of yeah. like the old dial-up internet if anyone remembers that you know when you used yeah. to hear the telephone line crackle it's, it's that it's that sort of speed yeah. um so they just have basically waiting for a long long time for it to all come back to earth and they can, yeah. they can study it because um, one of the reasons why it takes so long is is partly because it's far um but also because new horizons can't have solar panels because it's it's too far away from the sun there's no point um so instead it's got something called a radiothermal generator which basically uses a, a lump of radioactive material as a hot brick and converts that heat into energy um heat into power which means it has barely any electricity to power its radio to send it back so it's it's trying to send these signals back across enormous enormous distances with this piddling little radio basically (laughs) (laughs) it's just like if you were trying to do that the other way around you'd like build a power station to power the thing but yeah you can't do that on the spacecraft you can't fit it on um and you know, and that's it's even more incredible thinking about that when you consider that you know the mission's mm. not over and it's still going. It's still yeah, because it's, it's still collecting data. It's still collecting. Um, it, it's looking at new Kuiper Belt objects, isn't it? And it's sort of mapping radiation and interplanetary dust and hydrogen, and and um, it's still going. In fact, the reason why why we talk about it in the December issue um, is because it is in December. It's going to be starting a, a new campaign, a new project. It's going to be using its lorry camera. Um, this is its sort of long distance uh, f- uh, photography setup um, to look at nine Kuiper Belt objects that are close by, uh, and it'll we've 
uh, NASA have have tracked these down using Earth-based and Earth-based telescopes and the Hubble Space Telescope as well. But you can only get a certain angle from Earth because we're looking at them from so far away. So you can only really look look at them dead on as they are to the sun. Whereas because New Horizons is is in amongst them, it can look at them from the side and it can look at them obviously much closer as well. So it can let people look at... uh, So it allows astronomers to be able to sort of see how the brightness changes as these things rotate, um, which is a great way to find out about their shape and their size. uh, And and possibly even find out a bit about what they're made of. So even though it's still going to be, you know, millions of kilometres away when it's doing these observations, it's going to be able to get a completely different look to what we'd ever be able to make on Earth. And, you know, that's not forgetting. I mean, I was reading that apparently some of the some of the objects that, that they're going to be looking at are could be as much as 150 million kilometres away. So it's, you know, it it's not going to be another flyby like Arakoth it's not going to be that level but it's still incredible that they can just they can they can look at the you know the um the shadow of something or the uh, silhouette of, of of an object that far away and they can learn so much about as you say is how it's spinning what it's shaped like um what its surface is made of which potentially tells them whether or not it's being bombarded with micrometeoroids which potentially tells them what the conditions are like in the Kuiper belt you know for Kuiper belt objects I always find it amazing because quite often when you're observing these things, all you can see is like it just it's like a pixel, maybe a couple across because they're so far away and so tiny. And yet even from that like one pixel, if you track it for long enough, you can tell so much information and, and, and really work out what's going on with these 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 distant objects. I know it's the same with um, exoplanets, isn't it? You know, like they can just they can look at an ex- a, a, a dot going in front of a point of light, which is a exoplanet passing in front of its star and they can work out like the mass and the density of the exoplanet and what it might be like you know whether it might be earth-like or whether it's a gaseous giant it's just it's absolutely mm-hmm. incredible it's mind-blowing <laughs> yeah and and another thing that this mission will be doing is potentially looking out for another close flyby target like with Arikov. um the the people the new horizons team on very confident that they'll find one. They think it's quite unlikely that they'll be able to to find one that's within New Horizons, you know, fuel adjustment range. Um, and also because New Horizons is almost at the very edge of the Kuiper Belt, um, it's only a couple of hundred a million kilometres away. And when you're talking billions of kilometres, that's that's not very far at all to go. Um so I think uh, in, in the next couple of years, it's due to, to leave the Kuiper Belt and start heading out into the very, very outer edges of the solar system. But even then, its job won't be done. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of scientists out there who have um, all of these different um, requests for can you look at this thing? Can you look at that thing? Can you can you turn New Horizons around and look back in this into the solar system um, once you get outside of the Kuiper Belt? Because yeah, this is only the the third spacecraft that's got out to that region and still be working and still sending data back out back home. Um, the other two that's were, so cool. Yeah, the other two were the Voyager spacecraft and. They were incredible machines, and the fact that they're still going is is phenomenal. 
but they were built in the 70s <laughs> with with very 70s technology, whereas New Horizons is a much, much more modern spacecraft and has much more modern instruments. So if you think of that, the um, Voyager mm. blue dot image, the the, the uh, pale, mm. pale blue dot image of like, you know, the kind of the portrait of the solar system yeah. it's, as it's looking back, th- this will be a sort of portrait of the solar system from beyond the Kuiper belt. Yeah, that, that's the hope that they'll be able to take that or or something similar. Uh, I know that there's there's one team that wants to look back at um, the things like Jupiter and Saturn because it's there is it's very very thin, but there is a kind of atmosphere. There is there is gas and within the the inner solar system that once you're beyond the Kuiper belt, you you're outside of that bubble and you can see through it. And there's people wanting to investigate that sort of thing. Um, so I'm I'm actually really looking forward to seeing what New Horizons has to do and what New Horizons is going to get to see um, in the next coming decade or so until it finally runs out of power, which I think is due sometime around 2030. So it's still got a, a, a decade or so in it left. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's so cool when you think about New Horizons in that context, especially in the context of sort of, you know, do you know what Jupiter or um, Cassini mm. at Saturn, you know, so like Cassini at Saturn was purposely deorbited into the planet yeah. and that's it, you know, goodbye. Whereas New Horizons, it's it's of the same era. It's the same sort of planetary, planetary explorative mm. robotic probe, but it's going to be continuing on, on into the solar system, sort of almost like rep- representing humanity, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's these just kind of set them flying and go and see where they end up. <laughs> Which I think, yeah. Yeah. So cool. Now that we've taken a good look at the outer edges of our solar system, uh, we're going to take a look at something slightly closer to home in our expert interview. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Apostolos Christou, an astronomer from the Armagh Observatory and Planetarium. And recently, Apostolos came across a rather unusual discovery about an asteroid in the same orbit as Mars. So, Apostolos, what was so special about this uh, asteroid? Uh, Hello, Elizabeth. Well, um, we've been looking at um, this group of asteroids uh, that have been following Mars as um, a flock of sheep, if you like, might follow a shepherd. And uh, uh, I've been looking at one of those with a rather big telescope, and we've been trying to measure its color. That's useful to tell us about the composition of the asteroid or what sort of minerals um, might be up there. And what we found, uh, strangely enough, it has uh, a color very similar to our own moon. So it's it's mm-hmm. it, it's almost a a, a, a dead ringer. For the moon, color-wise, you might say. And what does that that mean for the asteroid? Did the asteroid start on the moon and somehow make its way to Mars? Most of the asteroids we know out there, uh, the colors are not very different from the moon. Um, the, the, uh, uh, you might be uh, surprised to know that the moon is slightly red, although this will not register. Um, to the eye, and also uh, um, asteroids are 
sl uh, slightly red as well. Uh, however, when you take precise measurements uh, of the colors, you find that there are very um, important um, differences how the, the amount of light that the asteroid reflects varies across the different colors. In this case, what this asteroid is color-wise is um, much, much closer to the moon than it is for any other asteroid. Uh, now, there could be a number of uh, possibilities here. One, uh, which is probably the most um, mundane one, but we cannot um, dismiss it without more information, is that uh, this is just an, an, an ordinary humdrum asteroid that's just been out on the sun for too long, uh, to be precise, for four billion years. Um, because of that, uh, its color has been changed because of radiation from the sun. Okay, uh, so so um, the color actually, in that case, does not tell us so much about the composition of the asteroid, but uh, uh, how, how long it's been out there. A second possibility, and here is where we're getting excited, is, well, it has a, the color of the moon because it came from the moon. Now, this is not possible to do now. Uh, you cannot launch an asteroid from the moon um, and expect it to be somehow locked to the Martian orbit in a stable way that, um, like this asteroid is, because the asteroid doesn't have rockets. You know, it cannot change its trajectory. However, um, back at the beginning of the solar system, when the planets were uh, forming, uh, there were a lot of impacts on the moon. So, so there's a lot of material, you know, being dug out of the moon and flying out in all the different directions. So what could have happened is that one of those, like, um, uh, shards, you know, like a shard of glass from a, a broken jar, ended up in the Martian orbit. This by itself is not difficult to do. But then what happened is that Mars still had not fully formed at that time. So what, what, what happened is as Mars grew up in mass, it sort of locked the asteroid in its orbit. So it was now unable to go away. So if this is true, it tells us that this asteroid is actually quite, quite old. It's, it's um, a lot older than, uh, for example, any of the asteroids that we know come near the Earth, which are uh, at most about 100 million years old. This is again, you know, in absolute terms, this is also very old, but not as old as uh, 4 billion years. Finally, the asteroid could have come from Mars. Its color indicates um, the sort of minerals that we found, uh, that we find in the upper layer of Mars, what we call the crust. And just like the moon, Mars also got pummeled by impacts early in its history. So if it's possible that the asteroid came from the moon, it, it's actually even more plausible that it, it came from Mars itself and then got locked in its orbit in the same way. And 
you've been talking there a lot about the asteroids uh, color and how it compares to the moon. Is there anything else that we know about the asteroid at the moment? Okay, so the asteroid, uh, um, we know it is based on, on, on its brightness. Uh, 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 it's quite small. It's, um, it's about a kilometer across, so nothing to shout about. It also has an orbit that's, uh, if you like, it's it's tilted to the orbit of the planets. Now that's significant because if we want ever to go there, we have to change our orbit to match the orbit of the asteroid, and that's more difficult to do for these kind of tilted orbits. It may it takes more fuel. Uh, if we we do want to find out exactly, you know where this origin, this asteroid originated. What kind of follow-up observations or investigations need to happen to, to sort of narrow that down? Right, so um, what we could do in the near term, try to obtain the same sort of data that we've got, but um, higher quality, to give us a better handle of the, the shape of its spectrum, so to speak, and we can do that with um, telescopes that are actually about to go online in the next few years. One of them is the uh, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope that's uh, scheduled to launch um, upon an uh, Ariane 5 rocket next year. And this actually, actually uh, can take really good um, uh, spectra or color measurements of the asteroid in the near infrared part of the spectrum, it's easier to distinguish between different minerals on the surface. Uh, however, if we if we really want to, um, if you like, um, uh, find out once and for all where the asteroid came from, we really have to go out there and touch it. Uh, we may not necessarily have to bring a, a, a sample back, but even if we manage to land on it uh, and uh, measure the chemical composition, this will tell us a great deal about where it may have come from. Well, we've recently sent a bunch of missions to, to asteroids that aren't around planets, so maybe in the future we'll get one sending off to Mars. There's always uh, more asteroids than spacecraft out there, so I... I I would like to remain optimistic that one day we'll be able to visit this asteroid, which could turn out to be the, if you like, the the, the lost uh, sibling to the moon. Well, that is a lovely note to end on. So thank you very much for talking to us today, Apostolos. Thank you, Elizabeth. If you're planning on looking up at the night sky this month, we recommend taking the time to observe the Geminid meteor shower which looks set to be one of the most spectacular of the year. The Geminids can be seen right the way through the first half of December, but will peak on the night of the 13th to the 14th of December at around 10 to 1 a.m. GMT. Because the moon will be nearly new, the sky will be much darker, allowing you to see even the dimmest of meteors. The best time to observe will be after midnight going on towards dawn. And to get the best show, you'll want to travel to a dark sky site, but current travel restrictions may mean you're not allowed to do so, so be sure to check before you go. If you can't get to a dark sky site, then anywhere you can get away from immediate sources of artificial light, such as a local park or your back garden, will still give you a good show.
Just make sure it's safe and that you can keep warm as you'll be spending a lot of time outside in the middle of December. Leave your telescope at home as the best way to see meteor showers is with your naked eye. Put your phone or any other light source away and start looking up, taking in as much of the sky as you can. A sun lounger or reclining chair is ideal for this, as it will help prevent neck ache. After 20 minutes or so, you should notice that your eyes have adapted to the dark and you'll begin to see streaks of light shooting across the sky. Geminids are so-called because they appear to emanate from the constellation Gemini. Find Gemini in the night sky, and if you manage to spot a meteor racing away from this point, chances are you've just seen a Geminid meteor. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about New Horizons in the December issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take a look at the upcoming alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, discover the incredible work by pioneering Scottish astronomer Mary Somerville, and all of our print copies this month come with our fabulous 2021 calendar, which features all of the best images from this year's Insight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year Awards. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.